0: So we'll be turning uh, again this morning to John chapter 4, picking up where we left off in regard to Jesus' encounter with this uh, Samaritan woman. Uh, We started it last week and we're going to pick up this morning in verse 27 uh, and read down through 42 Uh, What we studied last week really had to do with the encounter specifically Jesus had with the the Samaritan woman and the conversation that he had with her. Uh, What the text has to do with today is the conversation that he has with his disciples after they come back and they find him here speaking with uh, this woman. So I'm going to read from 27 uh, down to 42. Just as his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, uh, but no one said, what uh, do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out uh, of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, has some, uh, anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, uh, lift your eyes or lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Uh, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his words. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have hurt for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We spoke about the Samaritan woman last week, recognizing that she would have been considered among the Jewish people for certain and obviously also amongst the Samaritans as being a woman of ill repute. Uh, she's had four or five different husbands and the one that she's with now she's not even married to. Uh, we know that she would have had a bad reputation in the community even amongst the Samaritans. We know that just being a Samaritan she was looked down upon by the Jewish people and we went into some great extent talking about the fact that the Jews would do everything they could to avoid having any contact or any interaction with uh, the Samaritans. So they return. They finish their errand and they return back and they find Jesus speaking with, uh, with this woman. They are... Surprised uh, for a number of reasons. One of those is the fact that she's a Samaritan, as we, we talked a lot about last week, that, that the Jews really did everything they could to have no interaction, no contact with Samaritans at all. But we need to glean a few things from all of this, uh, and another one is this, is, is that uh, Jewish men very rarely had any, any interaction with women other than family women, other than their wives in particular and daughters and etc., So I think it's understated here when we consider that they were surprised. I think probably a better rendition of the particular Greek word that happens to be here would be they were shocked. They were stymied. They were stunned that Jesus was talking to this woman, in more particular, this woman who was also a Samaritan. When it begins to dawn on her, just the things that Jesus has said to her and the things that she's learned in this brief conversation that she's had with him, she's lifted to a place that she has never been before. She's so excited about what's going on with this transformation that she's experiencing through this conversation she had with the one who has recognized and acknowledged himself to be the Messiah to her at this point. She's so excited that she, she rushes to tell people about him. To tell others about this encounter that she has had. Even to the point she's so excited that she leaves her water pot there. Which could have very well been one of her very greatest possessions. You know, Typically the women came early in the morning and it was the women that drew the water. And they would draw enough water to make it through the day. So they would, they would get an ample amount in the, in, the, in the early morning. And then later on before the sun went down they would go back to the well. But she's so consumed with the conversation that she just had with Jesus and the transformation she has to feel going on internally within herself. She completely forgets not only the the pot, but she also forgets the more precious part, the water. A few things I want to say this morning, and that is this. It's so easy for us to look around very often. And you've had the same thoughts that I have had at times, and that is look at so and so. They are so good, they seem to be such good people. Look how sweet she has, how nice he is, but they're not Christians. But boy, they sure would make great Christians. They almost look like Christians already. Have you ever met anybody like that in your life? I've met a few people like that. There was a sense in which they appeared to me almost to behave more like Christians than a lot of the Christians I knew behaved. Some of you come from pretty diversified backgrounds. Some of you have heard a little bit about my my testimony My coming to faith was considered by some to have been an absolute miracle. I've shared this with you before that one of my very best friends who became a believer shortly before I did looked at me one day and he said, Keith, you are the last person on the face of the earth I ever thought would become a Christian. What I would say to you this morning is this, is when it comes to assessing things, the person that should shock us the most in regard to our own personal coming of faith ought to be me, myself, and I. Not other people. Why do I say that? I say because there's some degree in which we know our own misgivings, our own shortcomings, our faults, our failures. And we should know those things far better than anyone else possibly could. Does it surprise you at all? That God chose you? That God has saved you? Talk to some other people. They may paint a little different story. I'm serious. When we look at this picture, we should be most amazed. We should most be astonished at our own salvation. Every one of us. Because there are things that we know about ourselves that other people, quite frankly, don't know. There's things about me that Lori doesn't know. And there are things about, well, I don't want Lori to know. Even though she knows me far better than anyone else. And that's true for every one of us. See, God sees it all. He knows it all. And he loves us nonetheless. Are you not amazed by your salvation? It should astonish you. It should surprise you. Because God doesn't give that gift to everyone. I believe that when we get to heaven. That most people are going to f- actually find out that you had far more influence upon other people than you, you thought that you had. I had people come up to me at times, and sometimes they weren't even people that I knew, or they were people I knew very vaguely. And they shared with me, because my tran- my conversion was very much publicized and Still is, on occasion, because of the great transition that God brought me through. But one of the things that really should hit home with this is this, is that when we understand that God has saved us and we understand the gospel of grace... We should have the very same heart as this woman did, and that is this is this news is so great, this news is so grand that I cannot possibly keep it to myself. I mean, what is her initial reaction? She doesn't say, Well, I'm gonna go on a sojourn out into the wilderness and just there sojourn with with Jesus and the Spirit in the wilderness for a while of, of time of preparation and this and the other. Maybe God's going to use me for something later on down the road, but I'm not really ready to undertake any kind of a ministry on behalf of him at this point. I need that time. Notice she doesn't have that reaction at all immediately. This news that she's heard so, is so great and so grand, she cannot possibly keep it from anybody. She's an example of God using someone to bring a, a good number of other people to Him. Because you're going to see that as, uh, or, or we, we've already read through this, as so she goes and shares the news. There are many of the Samaritans that come to faith. And our witness and our testimony has something to do with that. Now some of you this morning may still think that you're not really that much of a special person. And you look upon yourself and you just don't see that there's a whole lot there. You're totally mystified as to why Christ would have even taken notice of you. Other people don't seem to take a whole lot of notice of you. uh, That sort of thing. But we always, when we're thinking about that sort of thing, we need to think about what God did to make me His. Let me remind you that the Son of God, eternal God, all-powerful God, almighty God, co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit became a man while remaining God. He never gave up his godliness, became a man. And lived a very difficult life. And underwent horrendous torture. Even death on a cross. And hallelujah, he was raised from the dead. And let me just remind all of us this morning, if Jesus came into the world to save one of us, he would have had to do everything that he did. To save me. That's how bad my sin is. That only God himself can atone for it. Is that not good news? Is that not great news? Is that not the very best news you've ever heard in your whole lifetime? How in the world can we keep it to ourselves? Really? It's not unusual for people that have been in their faith for a long time to get to the point where they just kind of take it for granted. It's easy for us to become ingrown. It's easy sometimes for Christians to, to develop the mentality that, you know, the only thing that matters ultimately is that when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Or if he comes back before I die, then I'm going to be with him anyway, and that's the most important thing, and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And we, we, we forget, we begin to forget that great commission. We forget The command that Christ has given to us, it's not a suggestion. It's not a perhaps if you want to, if you feel like it, if you have an occasion to do it. But we are called as Christians, every one of us, to actively, continually share our faith with other people. It's not a particular job that God just ascribes to a chosen few. It's part of our calling as a Christian. It's just as true for everyone in this room as it is for anyone else in this room. It doesn't necessarily mean that some of us are not more gifted in evangelism. Some people here are. But, one of the things that we're confronted with when it comes to this passage, are we being faithful to God's calling? Are we being faithful to what He has called us to do? Seriously. Sometimes I think we, we get this idea that in order to present the gospel, I've got to be able to tell everything, any, uh, tell anybody everything and anything that's in the Bible. Or sometimes we have the idea that this is, so, this is a job that God has exclusively given to people like pastors. That that's what they're supposed to do. My job is basically... To, to bring people's attention to the past or, or get his attention focused on them, and then it's his job to tell them about Jesus. That's not what we find in the Bible. We find over and over again people like the Samaritan woman. This news is so great and so grand, she cannot possibly keep it to herself. What is her first reaction? Is to go tell other people about it. It's not unusual for brand new believers to be somewhat zealous in their efforts to evangelize people. You know, when I first became a believer, I was telling people about Jesus all the time. But unfortunately, it's very easy for us to become comfortable as the years began to pass by. And to let evangelism fall by the wayside. It's easy to let our passion for the salvation of other people begin to wane with time. Well, some people have been through evangelism training. And evangelism training can be kind of relatively simple. It can be very complicated depending on what particular program you happen to go through. And that sort of thing. But uh, many of you know that I had Steve Brown for my preaching classes when I was in seminary. And one of the things he would tell us all the time, because he knew the burden, you know, that's placed upon pastors in regard to the salvation of other people. And what he would say to us continually, we have to just remind ourselves continually. We have to remember this always, that we are only beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Beggars telling other people, other beggars, where to find bread. Is that so hard? Is it so complicated? Seri- I want to throw a serious question out there before you this morning. When was the last time you talked with anybody outside this body about Jesus So are you convicted? I can see a few tears. And you need to understand that when I preach, I'm preaching myself. I don't share the gospel with people as often as you think I might. I always share it from the, from the pulpit, and I share it with people that I have meeting with, and that sort of thing. Uh, but this is an area that your pastor needs to be challenged, and your pastor needs to be more active in. So easy for people like me to c- get consumed with the church, dealing with the people in the church, people's problems, and that sort of thing. And, and it's easy for us to begin to lose a passion for evangelizing in our neighborhoods and, and other places. So pray for me as well in regard to this. I do want to say this: We sit here, and this morning, in a church that some people would classify as a little, teeny, tiny, small church, uh, and by some standards, it is. But you need to realize that in this area, there are lots of churches that are smaller than we are, uh, and very often, you know, the, the, the standard that people compare churches by today as being successful or not successful is their size not the depths of their community, not the deep devotion of the people that are part of the congregation, but everything today has to do with numbers. How many people, you know, every time I bump into someone that, you know, maybe I went to seminary with when I go to General Assembly, I always bump into guys that I went to school with 20, almost 30 years ago now, and we still recognize one another, and uh, and, and I'll talk with them, and one of the most amazing things, that, the things that amazes them is that I'm still in the same place that I started ministry at. They, on the other hand, very often have been to five, six, seven different churches during that period of time. And I wonder about it, because you know, it's always, well, God called me to a different ministry. God called me to do this, that, and the other. And sometimes I wonder if it's not just because ministry in a particular place gets really, really hard. And it's just easier to move on somewhere else. But the world out there, and there's a part of the church out there that judges us based upon how many people that we have here this morning. But you know my heart, and that is this. I don't think I would do well in a big church. It's not my personality. I would feel like a fish out of water. So maybe it's my fault. And if that's true, then you need to get rid of me today. Uh But I also believe that there's this possibility, and I mentioned this last week, I think, and that is that sometimes God purposely keeps churches on the smaller side so that when something great and wonderful happens, they can't take credit for it. What we need to do is we need to be faithful in what God has called us to do whether that means being a big church or a small church or even a smaller church than we're in right now. We just need to be faithful to His calling. That's what we need to be concerned. That's what our focus needs to be on. Not how many people here are on Sunday morning. But are we as a congregation being faithful in doing what Christ has called us to do? And a big part of it has to do with telling other people about Him. There's a contrast here in this particular text between this woman and her newfound faith in the Messiah and these disciples now that have been with Jesus now for not a whole long time, probably not a year at this point, but they've been with him for some time, and they've heard him teach, they've heard him preach, they've seen him do all kinds of miraculous things and uh, and that sort of thing. This kind of traveling entourage that you find with Jesus and the disciples, you need to understand was a kind of a common thing in the ancient Near East. That there were many traveling teachers, and they would go from one place to another and that sort of thing, and they would would have a group of disciples uh, with them, and, and, and and the leader's purpose or the teacher's purpose was to teach, to teach them and to teach other people and that sort of thing. And one of the responsibilities of their disciples was to take care of the teacher's physical needs. In other words, to make sure he got food on a regular basis, had a place to sleep at night, that sort of thing. So we need to understand, it would not be unusual for these disciples to be concerned about Jesus eating. That's why they went into the town, it was to get something for Jesus to eat. And they brought it back to him. that it really is amazing <laughs> how these guys almost seem to be dumbfounded by all of this. They're more focused on Jesus eating than in celebrating the salvation that's come to this woman. <laughs> now you may not realize that people can actually go for months without eating a single thing and it's not gonna kill them well it might if they do it long enough it will I know there are a lot of us we think we have to eat these three meals a day and if we miss one of them every now and then it's like you you can't miss a meal you've gotta eat if you don't eat it's almost like we believe that we have this impending death Our doom lying upon us that we're gonna pass away if we don't have breakfast, lunch, and dinner today. But it's just interesting to compare what the focus of the disciples was compared to the focus of this woman. These guys that have known Jesus for a longer time, they've heard Jesus over and over again. They've seen Jesus do this, that, and the other, and whatever. And they seem to be locked into the physical aspects of life. Jesus understands, and the woman understands, that there are matters that take place in this world that are far more important as things like eating food. It's amazing, at this point, it's like the disciples, even though they had all this time with Jesus and so on, they just don't get it. Well, let me ask you something. Who are we more like? The Samaritan woman? Or are we more like the disciples? And I'd say most of us would have to be honest and say, I'm probably more like, my reaction to things sometimes more like that of the disciples. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other places, he describes it as being about his father's business. Certainly not to the degree and not to the extent, but that is a calling that he passes on to all of us. That we would be about our Father's business in all that we do. We started having brunch almost, well really as soon as we started meeting for church. In the very beginning, we were meeting in Lloyd and Lucy's house, and the kitchen was right there. And So we said, you know, why don't we bring some donuts and muffins and whatever, and we'll have like a little thing of food, you know, after the worship service. And so we did that for, uh, I don't even remember how long, for months. We were at Lloyd and Lucy's house, but eventually we decided we needed to get public, and so we rented the old community center down here uh, on C39. And we were there for six Six years, but uh, when, we, when we did that, I had the audacity of suggesting that we might stop with the, f- the food after church. And let me tell you, I thought I was going to be run out of town on a rail. People love it. And, and I think they love it for a number of reasons. Well, Some of you remember Don and Tommy Maxim and, and their health just kept declining and declining and declining and declining. And, uh, and I asked Tommy one day, I said, what can we do for you guys? And she said, how about on Sunday, if you could just get a place of that really good food and bring it to, Tom, to Don and me. And so it's about the food, but I want to challenge us with the idea that the food is not the most important thing when it comes to brunch. It's a very secondary thing. And let me tell you something, if you don't get anything to eat at brunch, it ain't going to kill you. It's just not. There's not anybody here that couldn't couldn't skip a meal without suffering any bad consequences as a result of it, unless you happen to be very hypo or hyperglycemic or something. So what, what I want to ask you the question this morning, what is more important to you when it comes to brunch? Is it the food or is it the fellowship? I'm hoping you're thinking and you're saying, honestly, the fellowship. Now, some of you probably have noticed that I'm usually one of the last people to eat. You might think that because T's just a humble guy. Not that at all. Part of it is I've just come down from the pulpit, and let me tell you, that it has physical things That you you when you stand in a pulpit and you preach to people, like I told you last week, uh, that George Whitfield vomited every time before he preached. I mean, when you get up to preach the Word of God, it's not like you're just giving a speech to people. It is physical. It is internal. It is draining. When I leave here, I will be tireder than I would be if I went out and dug postholes all day. But it's what we're called to do. But one of the main reasons I go last is because one of the things I do is I make double sure that there's not someone, especially someone who is visiting here, that is sitting all by themselves. That's the main reason I wait. Because I don't want anybody to come here and visit, especially on Brunch Sunday. And leave here without anybody in the congregation giving them some very special attention. So I want to challenge all of us. It is about the food. We need the food and whatever. But that is all secondary. The main thing is about community. Community. And when it comes to a church, it always means this close-knit community that is very willing, not only willing, but desiring to welcome new people into the fold. And I have over the years, I've gotten some nasty letters from people who came to visit the church. You would say things like, I came in the door and I was there and not one single person said boo to me all morning. But let me tell you, for every one of those I get, I get about ten that say exactly the opposite. So my impression is that the first impression, and some of you haven't even been here that long, what was your impression of the congregation here? Did they make you feel welcome and wanted and et cetera, or like you were the fifth wheel on a wagon? It's so easy for us to gravitate to the people that we know and the people that we're familiar with. That's where we're comfortable. Right? I'll be, be willing to bet you that most of the people in this room sit with the same people every time we have brunch. There are people you know. There are people you're comfortable with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Broaden your horizons. Step beyond your comfort zones. Please don't ever let anybody that's here visiting sit there by themselves, ever. Another thing that I want to hit on this morning is very often we have this idea that we can sit down with some, and this can happen, this does happen on rare occasions. It's not the norm at all, even though very often we're encouraged to believe that it's the norm that we can sit down with someone and we can share the gospel with them and immediately they're going to lay hold of it and immediately they're going to confess faith in Christ and, and show themselves to be true in their, uh, their profession of faith from that point on in their life. I doubt seriously there have been very many people that have come to faith through that mechanism. It's not what I experienced. And I seriously doubt it's what the vast majority majority of you experience very often evangelism is a tag team operation you see that here you know Jesus talks with a woman what does a woman do then she goes and she tells her telling other people what she's learned Paul understood this principle very clearly. When he was writing to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this. He says, when one says, I follow Paul, and I another, this is actually from, from 1 Corinthians. Uh, one of the big issues in the Corinthians, they, have, they were divided about everything. Who's the leader here? Who do we follow? Who's teaching a primary person? Divided in possibly every way you can, you can believe, you know, socially, and this, that, and the other. That's Paul's whole reason for writing this letter is to say, get rid of those divisions. You're one body in Christ. Back like it. Forget about all those things that would serve to divide the congregation. Some of them were divided about whose teaching they were following. So Paul writes this. He says, uh, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Remember, Apollos was uh, the guy that came in shortly after Paul and kind of picked up where he had left off. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed? As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labors. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace. This is from 2 Corinthians 3.10 here. According to the grace of God given to me, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. See, I would imagine that for most of you, when you came to faith, it wasn't just through the words and the testimony of one single person. In other words, more often than not, what you're going to find is evangelism is kind of a tag-team thing. It takes more than one encounter with more than one person very often for people to really begin to give serious consideration to the possibility of the reality of the gospel. Has anyone ever walked up to you and said something like this? And you're sitting there going, I don't even remember. Has anyone ever said to you, you know, that you had a good deal to do with my coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And you're wondering... What are they talking about? Yeah, I talked with them one time briefly for about two minutes about things. You need to understand this, and I think this is something that very often the church is forgetting today, and that is that people don't very often come immediately to faith like this Samaritan woman did. Very often it is a tag team operation where they hear the same similar things from different people over a lengthy period of time. When I came to faith, Lori was witnessing to me. Bill and Sherry, her sister, and my brother-in-law, they were witnessing to me. A couple of my best friends that I had known before I was a believer were witnessing to me. I was being bombarded from about ten different directions with the same message over and over again. Some people want to take ownership. I led so-and-so to Christ. There's another point on my crown. Let me tell you, that happens on rare occasions. Most of the time, it's the consistency of hearing the same message from a variety of different people. It is something when you see that God has used you in the conversion of another people. It's something to to take delight and joy in. I would not be at all surprised if we get into heaven and you have people come up to you and thank you for playing a role in their conversion and you don't know them from Adam. Adam. See, it has a snowballing effect. What starts out little is like a snowball rolling down the hill. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Picking up more snow as it goes. There's one other thing I want to very quickly remind us of, and that is this, is that when we share the gospel with other people, we never do it alone. Ever. The Holy Spirit is there. Sometimes we think that God sends us out all by ourselves. He doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit is always there working in us and through us. You do not have the ability to convert anyone, no one, can you bring to the point of them professing faith in Christ, God has to do it. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, that person is dead to Christ, dead to the message, Dead to salvation. Dead in every way you can imagine from a spiritual aspect. Sometimes I think we just need to learn how to rely on the Holy Spirit more. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough in Reformed churches. We just flat don't. Because it may terrorize you to think that I'm going to go out and I'm going to share the gospel with my neighbor. It's very helpful if you remember that when you go, you're not by yourself. We're always concerned about saying the right thing in the right way and this, that, and the other. Lean upon the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. And remember that you can't convince anybody of these things. God has to do it. But he does use us. And we just need to be faithful in our calling to tell others, to remember that we are ourselves beggars. And we are able to tell other beggars where they can find bread. It is helpful to remember that Jesus does not expect you to convert anybody. He does, however, expect you to share what you know with other people. Anybody and everybody that he brings in your path. How how are we going to feel when we get to heaven and we're there in the heavenly places? We bump into so and so and we're going, I don't remember them ever being a believer. I know I didn't ever share the gospel, but they sure didn't act like they were believers and, you know, this, that, and the other. And they walk up to you and they don't say, thank you for sharing the gospel. They walk up to you and say, why in the heck didn't you tell me this stuff? Why didn't you ever take the time to share this with me? This really, really impersonal, I thought you cared about me. I thought you loved me and you never told me about Jesus one time. that could possibly happen. Jesus says I must be about my father's business you want to know what our commission is exactly the same thing to be about our father's business and everything that we do to tell people about Christ to encourage other people who are in Christ We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. It's a reminder of many, many things. One of the principal ones is this, is, is that this is, is, a, is a picture for us of just how costly our salvation is, that it cost Jesus his life, that His body was crushed, that his blood was shed. for me, not just in a general sense, but willfully and purposefully on his part, for me. Not to make salvation a possibility, but to make salvation for me a definity. Christ team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation.